Lord bless his word today as it is read and as it is preached. May our ears not be dull of hearing, but may they be open and ready to receive the word read and preached. Our text today is from Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12 There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. How is it that people can be so sincere in what they believe and yet be so wrong? For it is evident every day that people who hold contrary positions as to the truth cannot both be right and yet they seem so sure that they are right. Now this sermon is not intended to cast saints into a vicious cycle of doubt worry and fear concerning the state of their soul, but it is intended to cause any who hear this sermon to examine themselves so as to know wherein lies their only hope of eternal salvation. In fact, I would pray that all who are justified by faith alone would find much encouragement to their faith from the sermon today. However, I must also challenge you and challenge myself that we not rest our salvation in our mere sincerity, in our mere sorrow or regret for sin. That we rest not our salvation in our mere zeal and enthusiasm. That we rest not our salvation even in our intellectual knowledge of the truth that we rest not our salvation in acts of obedience or acts of mercy or in our baptism or even in our church. On the one hand, we pray for the blessed grace of assurance of faith, but on the other hand, we pray that God exposes self-deception where it blinds us to our true spiritual poverty before God just as Jesus exposes the self-deception of those elders and members in the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You remember the words spoken there by the Lord where he says, Revelation 3, 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That was their evaluation of themselves. But Christ had a different evaluation of them. Let us therefore prayerfully consider from our text in Proverbs 14.12 the following two main points. Number one, the self-deception of mere sincerity. And second, the consequence of self-deception. First of all, the self-deception of mere sincerity. This warning from God concerning the danger of self-deception is so important for us to hear that the Lord not only mentions it here in Proverbs 14.12, but brings the same proverb word for word to our attention again in Proverbs 16.25. Now that's very unusual that the exact same proverb would be mentioned twice in the book of Proverbs. But again, the reason for that is that the Lord does not want us to miss this point. Here's a red flashing light, if you will, going off and all the bells and whistles going off at a railroad track. The arms have come down over the railroad track and it's warning us, do not cross. Do not 
pass over the tracks. There's danger. There's danger. And that is why the Lord has repeated this proverb twice, word for word, to get, so that we might give heed to this proverb. There is a way which seemeth right, or literally straight, unto a man. Here Solomon speaks of a course of life or a path of religion which seems so right unto a person. However, it is right not in an absolute sense, but right in an apparent sense. Literally, there is a right way before the face of a man. That is, in the man's own eyes, it appears right. From his own personal perspective, it seems right. It seems like the right decision to make. It seems like the right way to live. It seems the, the right religion or philosophy to believe or the right doctrine to embrace. In fact, there is nothing in the Hebrew word, uh, in that Hebrew word for right in Proverbs 14.12 that would give us the impression that such a person is intentionally walking contrary to the truth, but just doesn't care about the truth. To the contrary, the words used in this proverb would lead us to conclude that it is his intention to walk in the path that appears to him to be right. Here is a well-intentioned Sincere person that has not only been deceived, but has also deceived himself into believing a lie. He has willingly received a lie for the truth. Now it would seem that King Saul believed he was right in allowing the army of Israel to keep some of the animals captured from the Amalekites for the purpose of offering them to the Lord as burnt offerings, even though God had previously said through Samuel that everything was to be destroyed, destroyed without exception. He, Saul, made an exception where God made no exception. It was a way which seemed right to Saul to show perhaps his gratitude to God for having delivered the Amalekites into his hands. Paul, uh, Saul probably reasoned, how could this possibly be wrong to save some, to destroy everything, but to save some and offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord? But God declares it was not only wrong, but God says in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, that it was actually rebellion against God, regardless of Paul's, or Saul's sincerity. Dear ones, it is not what feels right to us or seems right to a majority of the people that makes something right. What is right to do in any circumstance must be measured by the infallible standard of God's word. Isaiah 8.20 says it so clearly. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The very last verse in the book of Judges describes so well what was responsible for various acts of disobedience during those backsliding times. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25 Rather than following the alone infallible standard of truth, God's written word, the people were a law to themselves and were led, therefore, by their own fallible standards of what was right and what was wrong. And as a result, we find them repeating this cycle 
wherein they do what is right in their own eyes, God then, in response, sends a nation to chasten them. They then repent of their sin after they're under the bondage of this nation. And finally, God sends them a deliverer. And then the process, the cycle starts all over again in Judges. God says all men are naturally inclined due to the corruption of their soul to do what is right in their own eyes. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of men are clean in his own eyes. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. <clears throat> that is why the Lord commands us not to lean upon our own understanding. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. The Jews of, the Jews of Paul's time were very zealous for God, says Paul, but not according to a true knowledge of Scripture in Romans 10.2. Paul even says about himself that he sincerely believed that he was doing a good deed for God, that he was obligated before God to persecute Christians. In Acts 26, verses 9-11, through 11, he thought he was doing what God called him to do in persecuting Christians. Or consider the deception that is prophesied to come upon the world through the son of perdition, the man of sin, the papal antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, there we read, And then shall that wicked that is, that wicked one, then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, they fall into self-deception because they took pleasure in unrighteousness and did not love the truth, even the gospel of salvation. But the elect, we are told by Christ, cannot, in fact, it is impossible that they be absolutely deceived by the lying signs and wonders of false teachers, according to Christ in Matthew 24, 24. Certainly, believers can be deceived, misled, self-deceived to varying degrees, but believers cannot be absolutely deceived so as to fall away from the faith altogether. Now, what are the various fallible standards that so often distort the truth so that man believes a lie and is led into self-deception? Mark these, dear ones, mark these, so that you do not fall into self-deception by leaning upon one of these fallible standards they may not cost you your soul, but they will cost you your growth in Christ. The first deception, the deception of antiquity. The deception of antiquity argues because a practice has been used or, or a principle has been believed for so long a time, it must be right. The Church of Rome argues that it is the only true Church of Christ because of its antiquity. <clears throat> but dear ones, it is not how old the Church is that proves whether it is the true Bride of Christ 
but whether it is faithful to the doctrines and the worship and the government given by Christ to the church in the Holy Scriptures. Furthermore, heresy has always existed alongside of the truth since the time of Christ and the apostles from the very beginning of creation. Lie, deception, falsehood has existed right alongside with the truth. If age alone is considered, if that's the test of whether something's right, simply its age, then I would say that heresy has as much of claim to antiquity as does the truth. However, antiquity and history do have, this is the other side of the coin, there is a proper use of antiquity. There is a proper use of history. But we must use it not as an infallible rule of faith and practice, but we must use antiquity and we must use history corroborating, using it to corroborate what the scripture already tells us. Showing us who were those in history who walked faithfully and according to God's word. Who were those in history who did not follow the word of truth and who fell away from and backslid from the word of truth? We want to walk in the footsteps of those who are faithful, not in the footsteps of those who were uh, backslidden. There's a second uh, deception, not only the deception of antiquity, but the deception of experts. The the, the deception of experts leads us into self-deception with such words as these. Who do you think you are to question the experts as to what is right or wrong? The experts are always right, whether in biology, psychology, religion, politics, ethics, philosophy, medicine, etc. Only they have the authority to tell us what is right or wrong. And when the experts are challenged to prove their principles from an infallible standard of truth, they then rant and rave and resort to malicious lies and misrepresentations and name-calling. However, there is, dear ones, only one infallible expert, and that is God speaking in the Holy Scriptures. All other so-called experts, whether familial experts, ecclesiastical experts, or civil experts are subordinate to the wisdom of God revealed in Holy Scripture. Of course, that is not to say that God can only instruct us directly through the Scripture apart from any teacher or minister or elder. For Paul states that Christ gave as gifts to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4, 11-14 The deception of experts, dear ones, comes when teachers, ministers, bishops, and popes are not subordinate to the Holy Scriptures. Thirdly, there is the deception of the majority. The deception of the majority will lead many into self-deception by making it sound so reasonable to be led by the will of the people. How many times have we heard majority rules? But dear ones, does the will of the people determine what is right or what is wrong? A majority of the people supported Hitler's Third Reich. 
A majority of the people once supported a racial slavery in this country. A majority of people would seem to support a woman's right to have her child murdered. A majority of people believe that all false religion ought to be preserved and protected by the civil magistrate. <clears throat> and it will not be long unless God intervenes before a majority of the people will also believe that sodomites may be lawfully united in marriage. There are states uh, that have uh, moved in that direction, but it won't be long till the vast majority, unless God intervenes, also promote that. Although voting has its place in the political process and at times in the church as well, a vote for that which is immoral and contrary to God's law never has a lawful place within a nation or within the church. It is not a majority that rules. To the contrary, it is our sovereign God and his word that rules. It is not the will of the people that determines right from wrong. It is the law of God that determines right from wrong. And the fourth deception, the last one, is the deception of an erring conscience. The deception of an erring conscience. The, the deception of an erring conscience will bring self-deception by making us feel that something is right when it is really wrong and that something is wrong when it is really right. However, the conscience here is no more a dependable guide to truth than is antiquity, experts, or the majority. For the conscience is fallible. The conscience is not infallible. Only scripture is infallible. The conscience is fallible. Our conscience must be submitted to the supreme authority of God's infallible written word if it is to properly lead us into truth. Just as in antiquity, experts and majority must be. We testify with our confession of faith against the deception of antiquity, experts, the majority, and an erring conscience that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. It's found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, paragraph 2. But the question then is raised, what about various uh, professing Christian churches that claim to appeal to the scripture as the infallible rule of faith and practice and yet come to contradictory conclusions as to the truth? What about those brethren who have held different views of church government within our own church and yet appeal to the same infallible word of God? Does this fact disprove our contention that scripture is the alone infallible rule of faith and practice? Absolutely not. For the problem is not with the infallible standard of Scripture, but rather the problem with, is with us who are sinful, fallible men. Let us be warned that we who profess faith in Jesus Christ may yet be led into self-deception even when we sincerely make our appeal to the Scriptures. Again, it may not be a self-deception that leads to eternal death, but nevertheless a real self-deception that leads to a blindness to the truth. How do professing Christians and professing Christian churches set themselves up for self-deception, even when they both appeal to the infallible standard of God's Word? How do they set themselves up for self-deception? Let me give you four suggestions. 
that I see, four ways that I see that we can set ourselves up for self-deception. Number one, we may be self-deceived through our ignorance in understanding the revelation of God. Rather than being discouraged by this, we should rather be encouraged to diligently study the scripture using all the tools available to us in our libraries as we have time. Now I know that that we don't all have, due to our various callings and duties, we don't all have the same amount of time and do not all have the same ability uh, to, to pursue uh, uh, particular subjects and topics in the study of God's Word. I realize that. But to the degree that you have that time and that ability, do you desire to do so? Do you want to do so? Start there. But mere study, Jones, and I have to make a qualification at this point, mere study of the Word of God is not enough in and of itself to rightly understand the Word of God for this is not just an intellectual exercise when we're reading the Holy Scripture. Without the Spirit of God leading and guiding us into truth, we will fall upon our own understanding and incline ourselves to self-deception. We will go to the Scripture to find what we want to find in the Scripture rather than allowing the Scripture to speak to us as to what God is actually saying if we're not led by the Spirit of God. The second way that we as Christians and as Christian churches can set ourselves up for self-deception. And again, I hope you understand uh, I'm not speaking to those out there. I'm speaking to us in here. These are steps we must take if we are to avoid self-deception. Number two, we may be self-deceived through our preconceived biases and cherished preferences. As I alluded to just a moment ago, to the degree that we are led in our study of Scripture by what we want to find in it, to that degree we will likely find what we wanted to find there in the Scripture and fall, therefore, into self-deception. If we would avoid self-deception, let us not force the Scripture into our own wants and desires. Rather, let the Spirit of God speak forth His good pleasure to us through His Word. A third way in which Christians and Christian churches set themselves up for self-deception we may be self-deceived through our pride in refusing to listen to teachers and ministers more wise and knowledgeable than ourselves whom Christ gave to the church as an aid to our edification. You see, there is a tendency to swing to one extreme to the other. I'm just going to study the scripture without any uh, aids, without any helps, without any minister, without any, anyone to help guide me. That's one extreme. The Bible and the Bible alone is all I'm ever going to use. And there's the other extreme to which we may swing, which is more popish, that, that the, that the uh, rulers, the governors, the elders the ministers speak infallibly and so I don't need to do any study at all. All I need to do is to go to them and just say, what should I believe? And, and, to, and to take it uh, at face value. That's implicit faith. Either one of those extremes is, is false, is wrong. But there is a right use of those whom Christ has given to the church as ministers who devote their time, as Acts 6 says, in prayer 
and study of the Word of God. That is their calling. That is what they do with their time, praying and studying the Word of God. And that's why being able to have a full-time minister is a profit and a benefit to the church. One who is divided, a minister who is divided because he has to provide for his family and yet try to spend time in studying the word, etc., can't not possibly do the same kind of job as if he were employed full-time doing that job any more than if you have two different jobs, two different callings, and you're trying to do both of them well, it's impossible. It's impossible to do both well. You have to focus on one and put your attention there. And this is again simply what the Lord says in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and following about God having given to the church these officers for the perfecting of the saints, for fulfilling the ministry so that the people are not drifting, being blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine. And so... This is one of the purposes of faithful ministers and elders. And so, uh, to use them in the way that God is called is another way to prevent self-deception. Fourthly, we may be self-deceived through our willful disobedience of what we already know to be right and true. You see, dear ones, when we do not live up to the light of knowledge that God has already given to us in his word, we are unlikely to be given or unlikely to be given more light and understanding. When we're not living up to the light that God has given to us and we're walking contrary to what we know we ought to be doing, it is more likely that God will blind us callous our hearts so that we are more susceptible to believing a lie than to receive the truth. Why should the Lord give us more understanding and more light concerning his ways, concerning his truth, concerning what is faithful doctrine, if we're not even seeking and desiring and endeavoring to live up to that light that he has already given to us. Jesus said in in John 7, verse 17, when, in effect, he was asked, "How how do we know whether what you're saying is from God or from man. This is what Jesus said. If any man will do his will, that is God's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself as a mere man. Notice the the condition. Not if any man desires his will, not if any man simply uh, is curious about his will, um, inquisitive about his will, asking questions merely about his will, but if any man is doing his will, then he shall know of the doctrine. So we fall into self-deception when we're not willing to do what God has called us to do now. And when we sin, we're not willing to repent of that sin when we commit it. But we continue in that sin. We continue, uh, if we have sinned against somebody else, we do not confess it immediately. But we allow that sin to go on. Well, what God does on his part 
When we are in that state of mind, God brings deception, a blindness, a judicial blindness. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but he does bring us into that kind of blindness when we will not deal with our sin. And that leads to, again, uh, deception. That leads to... um, following that which is false. Likewise, James says the same thing in James chapter 1 where he says, in verse 22 and following, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Notice, deceiving your own selves. See, a mere hearer of the word and not a doer of it is one who's going to fall into deception. He continues, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Notice, this is the effect of being an effectual doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. He's not deceived like the forgetful hearer, but the effectual doer is blessed in his deed. And part of the blessing is to understand, part of the blessing is to to have knowledge, to be able to discern between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. That's what the scripture teaches. Perhaps a question that weighs upon us with even greater gravity than anything thus covered in the sermon, thus far covered in the sermon, is this question. How can I know that I have not simply deceived myself as to being a Christian? How can I know that I haven't simply deceived myself? as to whether I'm a Christian or not. You know, dear ones, is there a more important question than this one? Is there a question with greater consequences at stake than this one? For clearly, there are those who will have deceived themselves on the last day as we read in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 21-23 where Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who professes me to be Lord, their Lord, in other words, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he, notice again, the importance of doing. Not simply talking about it, not simply thinking about it, but doing, seeking to do. None of us are perfect in our obedience, but endeavoring to do the will of God. And when we blow it, we repent, we seek God's forgiveness, we get back on our feet and start afresh. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Here, it would seem, Jesus doesn't say to them, you never did the things you claimed to have done. 
Jesus doesn't say to them, you never prophesied uh, in my name. You never cast out devils in my name. And you never did many wonderful works in my name. In fact, I would submit to you, Judas did all of those things. Judas Iscariot. He was endowed with the, the same power as the other apostles. And yet he was a devil from the beginning. In other words, there can be lying signs and wonders. Deception that's promoted and may be even done in God's name. But here Jesus doesn't say, I knew you at one time, but now I don't know you any longer. Jesus says, I never knew you. You were never a part of, 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 of mine. Regardless of what you claim to have done, because you did not do, as Jesus says in verse 21, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Doing the will. In the little things, in the important things, in the big things, not dividing our lives into compartments and saying, well, I'll do the will of God you know, as it relates to, to this situation, but you know, I'm all by myself no one sees and I won't do the will of God in this situation but basically being people of integrity that we do the will of God whether in secret or in public and when we do fail again it's not that none of us ever fails in those areas and because we fail doesn't mean we're not Christians and because we fail doesn't mean that we are not sincere in our faith. What demonstrates our sincerity, however, is whether we justify our sins, whether we make excuses for our sins, or whether we simply come clean before God and before others with grief and sorrow over how we have offended God and others. That's what demonstrates, again, I believe, the doing of the will of God. Because again, no one's expecting perfection in this life. None of us can can do that. That would be a covenant of works. Our works are not done in order to secure our salvation, but because we have been saved. Christ has fulfilled all of that for us. Let me give you some criteria, dear ones, by which to evaluate whether you have deceived yourself as to the state of your soul. Again, I don't know why, but there, all of these come in fours, uh, four, four of these as well in the sermon today. Evaluation as to whether you have deceived yourself as to the state of your soul. And they all basically fall under certain truths that we find in the scripture. And the first truth is this. The triune God alone speaks with absolute and infallible authority and he has spoken in Holy Scripture which is the alone infallible rule of faith and life. I ask you, is this your firm conviction? If even your own conscience speaks contrary to Scripture, do you believe that your conscience must bow to the infallible Word of God? If your desires run contrary to the infallible Word of God, are you willing to submit your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts to the Word of God? That Number one, I would submit to you for you to evaluate whether you are simply deceiving yourself as to the state of your soul. Uh, obviously, this all each of these imp, uh, implies that you are honestly asking these questions of yourself, not playing games. Secondly, a second truth. All men by nature deserve the eternal condemnation of God for the guilt of Adam's sin, the loss of original righteousness, 
the corruption of one's own soul and for one's own personal sins. There is nothing that man can do who is dead in his trespasses and sins in order to save himself. Nothing. I ask you, in light of that biblical truth, do you understand and acknowledge your hopeless and helpless condition if salvation depends upon you in any respect? A third truth by which you evaluate whether you are deceiving yourself as to the eternal state of your soul is this. God, out of his infinite mercy and grace, sent his divine Son to fulfill all the righteous demands of his broken law and to atone for the sins of all the ungodly who embrace by faith alone Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation. It is not your faith. It is not your repentance. It is not your love. It is not your new obedience that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Namely, Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you and grants you judicial forgiveness from God as judge for all of your sins, past, present, and future. But it is rather the object of your faith that justifies you and saves you. That is God and God alone. And I ask you again another question in light of that. Is there anything in you or anything done by you which you believe is meritorious before God or will incline God to save you? Or do you look entirely outside of yourself and look with the eye of faith to Jesus Christ alone? Look to his righteousness and his covenant keeping alone as being meritorious before an infinitely holy God. Do you not only believe that Christ is able and willing to save sinners in general who come to him, but that he is able and willing to save you in particular if you come to him and drink of the waters of everlasting life that he freely offers to you. Fourth and final truth by which to evaluate whether you have deceived yourself as to the eternal state of your soul is this. God is not finished with those who are justified but promises to gradually subdue the evil desires, profane words, and abominable actions that yet reveal themselves in their life, and to gradually manifest pure desires, edifying words, and lawful actions by applying all the benefits and promises of salvation purchased by Christ. Now, this is not perfectionism in this life. This is sanctification in this life. And I ask you, do you desire not only to escape the eternal condemnation in hell, but do you also desire to be conformed to the glorious image of Jesus Christ? Do you desire to grow in your hatred for sin? and in your love for righteousness? Do you desire to increase in your love for God and for the brethren? Do you hunger and thirst for the truth of God and to be illuminated in your understanding that you might not only know the word of God and the word of truth, but that you might do it? I submit, dear ones, that the one who can embrace by faith these truths and answer those questions 
that I have put forward with his mind, with his will, with his desire, cannot deceive himself as to, to the true state of his soul. Despite the deception of the conscience that would take one's eye off of the biblical truths just mentioned, one can proclaim in faith even when he does not feel it with the strength and sense of faith Christ is my righteousness and my salvation. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall defend me from the snare of a tyrannical and erring conscience. He shall cover me with His feathers and under His wings shall I trust. His truth shall be my shield and my buckler against all the assault of an erring conscience. Again, the feelings may not always be there to the degree that we want them to be there. And that doesn't mean that one is not saved simply because the feelings kind of go up and down and up and down. But when one can answer those questions and say, in my heart of heart, I believe those things. I know I am not what I should be. I see so much need for growth. But one who can honestly answer those questions and make that declaration that I just read and embrace that as his own or her own is one that is not going to be deceived as to the eternal state of his soul or her soul. The second main point, and and again, this is just going to take a couple minutes because uh, we've run out of time here, but is the consequence of deception. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, and here's the consequence, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The death here mentioned has in view far more than an untimely physical death. It ultimately looks to eternal death and hell. You see, this is the end of the road to all those who deceive themselves as to the eternal state of their souls and imagine that they are worthy to enter heaven and worthy to escape hell. With such an end awaiting those who are self-deceived about their salvation, how can you, dear ones, lightly dismiss this all-important message that is brought to you today from the living God? Let not his gracious warning fall upon a sleepy mind. Let it not fall upon a neglectful will. Let it not fall upon a rebellious desire this Lord's day. Flee to Christ who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Don't deceive yourself into believing you still have a lot of time to live the life you want to live before you repent and make things right with God. That is exactly what the devil would have you to believe and want you to do and how he would deceive you. Now is the day. Today. Now is the day of salvation. That is what God says to you. That's what he wants you to believe. Now. Don't wait. Turn from your sin, and in faith, turn to Christ alone for your righteousness and for your salvation. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the truth that we have considered today, that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but that way is the way of death, is one that should instill within us such a 
proper fear of our own tendency to be self-deceived. If not about our eternal state, but about decisions and about uh, doctrines and views of church government, etc., etc. If this does not cause us, O Lord, to fall upon our face before Thee and to declare that we are insufficient, O God, in all of these things, and if Thou dost not restrain us from this self-deception, we will certainly fall into it. Therefore, O God, we pray with David, search our hearts, know our thoughts, try us, see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We do pray, Father, that we will at all times seek to be transparent and honest with Thee. For, Father, when we begin to become dishonest with Thee, thinking that Thou dost or acting as if Thou dost not see or hear, what we do, what we say, we fall into that self-deception. However, when we know that Thou art a God who sees all, hears all, whom we cannot mislead or deceive, and who to whom we pray in all honesty, beating our chest, crying out, Be merciful to me, a sinner. We will likewise, O Lord, be those who speak the truth and live the truth, who hate lie, lying, who hate deception. We pray, Father, that Thou would make us people of integrity, that our word would be our life. That what we say, O Lord, we would not add to nor take away from, that we would not embellish, that what we say would represent what we accurately heard, saw, and believe. We do ask, O Lord our God, we stand in need of thy help. Forgive us wherever we have failed in these areas and cause us, our Lord, to grow in that grace of speaking the truth in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, 
all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.